Sci-Fi Sidebar. I'm your co-host, Cece. And I'm Peter, your other co-host. Welcome to our episode on Orson Scott Card's Xenocide. Uh, Peter, how'd you like it? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, Cece. This time, my fourth time reading the book, I hated it. <laughs> I realized it was terrible all I fi- along. I finally turned on this book. No. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I, I loved this book. Um, this is... Mm, this might be my favorite Endor Quartet book. Really? Yeah. It's either it is either this or Speaker for the Dead. Mm, yeah. But uh, I really like this book. That's interesting. What do you think that like speaks to you so much about this book? Or what about this book speaks to you so much, I guess I should say. That's what that's the same thing you just said. Anyway. Alright, um, Yeah, but it was phrased better. <laughs> <laughs> You got a proofreader at loud words. I know. <laughs> um, Somebody get me a mental red pen. <laughs> so what I loved about this book was what apparently, as I learned now, as I, you know, go back and review some of the uh, material from this book, is the fact that it, like, doesn't shy... It really tackles some, like, deep philosophical questions. It does, yeah. Which I enjoy in my science fiction. Um, one of the tenets of this book, of this podcast that we started, was to like discuss the philosophy of books, and we've done a real shite job of that. <laughs> it's true. Hopefully, you know, this book is like a real, a real attempt to get back to our roots. <laughs> yeah, really, just like find ourselves in our podcast. <laughs> um, but I, I, a lot of this book was spent discussing, arguing, theorizing about you know, the origin of free will about the origin of matter, because that was more philosophical than scientific. Right. Um, I realize that has no basis in reality, but it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, it it dealt with the implications of the reality that they were living in, which is an important side of science. Even if it's not the science that we live with, it's still a good exercise, I guess. That's true. So it was... So I think that is really what brought me to really liking this book. Just the... It took the s- science that kind of explained the world around them and applied it to what it meant for themselves. Right. Which, you're right. Like, what else is science for but for that? Right, you know, I mean, why, is, why do we try to discover anything anyway? Right, science is our attempt to understand the world around us in a factual manner. Mm-hmm. And... What are we doing with that knowledge if not applying it to ourselves? Right, trying to figure out what it means for us, whether that's in, you know, technologies that we can develop or just in worldviews and, like, the way you see your place in the universe. Right. Well, that's very you? interesting. I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I feel like Xenocide and Children of the Mind get kind of a bad rap. Um, I don't remember much about Children of the Mind. I think I, I realize now that I remember even less than I thought I did because there were things that happened at the end of this book that I was like, whoa, I forgot all about that. <laughs> and I feel like it's important going forward, but I don't remember how. <laughs> so um, that, yeah, so I think I can't really speak on that level, but I thought that this was a pretty good book. I still hold to my statement that Speaker for the Dead is, in my opinion, the best one of the, of the quartet and probably the best book Orson Scott Card has ever written. But this was a very enjoyable read, and I agree with you that I liked all the philosophizing. I think there's been a lot of talk lately about um, how, like, quote-unquote, like, literary authors 
think kind of kind of talk down on sci-fi like um Ian, Ian McKellen is that who it was no that's an actor oh crap I forget who it was some famous English author uh, very prolific <laughs> you definitely know who he is uh, wrote a sci-fi book don't. recently yes no I do too I just forget his name he wrote a sci-fi book recently uh, but he did not he was like very specific like no 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 this isn't about sci-fi this is like more of a thought experiment about like if the world today that we lived in had like all of these technologies there and everyone who's in the sci-fi community is like yeah it's sci-fi <laughs> Yeah, what did you think sci-fi was? Right, and there's, I guess, this feeling that people who don't consider themselves quote-unquote sci-fi people think of sci-fi as being, like, kind of, like, pulpy, like, overly dramatic storylines, you know, like, robots shooting each other in space type of a thing without, like, any further substance. And, yes, some sci-fi is, and that's fine because it's a good time, you know, it's enjoyable. There's lots of like, substanceless other kinds of fiction, too. This is not strictly a sci-fi thing, you know? But generally speaking, I think what draws me me personally to sci-fi is the fact that even the ones that are kind of pulpy that way still ask really good questions and make you think about the universe. Yeah, even if... Like, let's even take a, probably the most pulpy book we've done, which is The Terran Privateer. Mm-hmm, Yeah. It definitely more of a space opera, definitely less true serious science fiction. Right, it's not quote-unquote hard sci-fi by any measure. Exactly. But even that was like, let's talk about what happens if the aliens are actually, like, pretty chill. Right, yeah. And, like, can we find ourselves in a sort of subjectified, or not subjectified, um, subjugated uh, part of the universe? Like, can we as humans have that sort of humility and be like, okay, well, we will be part of something greater because it will be good for us. Like, it's not strictly this obsession with independence and, like, self-rule. Yeah, free Earth, free Earth, all that. Like, we don't... Sort of, I, like, I, I, I agree with you that it's sort of the, like, the, I guess, pulpiest sci-fi that we've done, but I did, it did, like, really bring some novel ideas, in my opinion, even compared to, like, other sci-fi, about what future the future could look like and how we might respond to different kinds of circumstances it was very hopeful honestly yeah i really uh that's part of the reason why i really enjoy that book Mm -hmm. like yeah there are bigots and yeah there are idiots and later books like there's actually terrorist attacks from humans that won't accept it Uh, that makes sense (laughs) yeah exactly that would would totally happen on brand for humans yeah 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 we terrorists attack each other all the time and that's humans yeah, imagine if our enemies had eight limbs. Yeah, exactly. It would be so easy to terrorist attack them. Yeah, so I, that's kind of why I really like that book series. Because, you know, it does really paint a more adaptive humanity than I think exists. Yeah. But I guess back to my original point, like, I think it's funny that a criticism of this book is like, ah, oh, you know, it's too cerebral. It's just like a bunch of, you know, people who aren't even that likable discussing philosophy and hardly anything happens. But, like, that doesn't mean that it's not good. And, in fact, I, I just think that's fun, kind of funny and contradictory. It's like two different criticisms of sci-fi can't coexist. <laughs> like, either it's completely substanceless or there's, like, entirely too much substance. Like, eating a whole head of cauliflower. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, maybe you'll enjoy it for a little bit. No, not cauliflower. No one enjoys that. 
an entire sprout, a bus- Brussels sprout stall. Joining a hot dog eating contest. No, that's not substanceful, Peter. That's <laughs> not substantial. There's definitely some substance going on there. <laughs> there well, okay, yes, there is definitely substance. <laughs> there are for sure some substances. <laughs> right. My point is just that I, I think that this is this is more of like a thoughtful, less action-packed sci-fi, but I enjoy that about it. And it's sort of like the direction that this series takes. Like Ender's Game is very action-packed. It's very plot-driven. And Speaker for the Dead is a little bit... It, it's still plot-driven, but there's still a lot of room for philosophy and moralizing and trying to figure out like ethical quandaries and then this one is almost entirely that. I, <laughs> like it's like ethics driven with plot to justify the ethics questions <laughs> that's not a bad point and that's not not how this book came about i mean like we talked about earlier like this the concept for xenocide predates ender's game by a great deal mm-hmm. and what i think is interesting about this the place of xenocide in this quartet is you're right the speaker for the dead was definitely not nearly as action-packed as of event-based as ender's game was Mm -hmm. and neither is it as thought-provoking as xenocide and children of the mind it really fills the role of a bridge between the two yeah kind of if you look at the the action and the cerebral yeah. Which is kind of interesting because it was almost by accident. Right. Like, if the, um, I think it was the, I don't know what you call afterward. I don't know what, I know what a forward is. I don't know what the. Yeah, it's an afterward. Is, is afterward the right word? Okay. Yeah. So the afterward of, I don't know if the physical copies had this above the audiobook that Cece and I both listened to. Um, basically was OSC talking about how this book originated. And it was saying that Xenocide, the concept of it was actually, Xenocide and Children of the Mind were originally going to be one book, and they were not going to involve Ender at all. <laughs> and it was just kind of this interesting idea about people going to the outside and you know asking these questions, and it would have been the most cerebral of sci-fi. Right, for sure. Because there really wasn't a plot. It was like people that built faster than light travel and went outside <laughs> and you know learned about the origins of, of matter and life. And that was it. And Xenocide and Children Lay of the Children of the Mind exist solely because his publisher was like, hey, people want to buy the Ender Trilogy. And Orson Scott Carr was like, well, there's only two books. Right. So so he went to the <laughs> Xenocide and was like, let's make this the third book. I, I can make this work. <laughs> yeah. But it's great because that's all, that was always what Xenocide was going to be. Like, a very intellectual, very thought-driven book. And it was never planned to be the third book when the fourth book, because he split into Children of the Mind and Xenocide, after Speaker for the Dead. Also, the original copy of, of Xenocide, what was it? It was, like, something called... It was, like, something about Philotes. Okay. Ah, shoot. I'm gonna try to find that. Um, but anyway, I think it's funny that, like, so we, we're talking about how Speaker for the Dead is such a great bridge between the two, and yet it was never meant to be that. That was not the design for Speaker for the Dead. Right, it was just going to be the end of, um, 
the end, like, Speaker for the Dead was just going to be Ender's progression. Ender used to be action-packed and youthful, and now he is older, and he's just learning how to be, you know, the guy. Domestic. Yeah, or, or yeah, he's learning how to be domestic, he's learning how to think about himself more so, like, he very much follow, follows along, and, you know, these books are just another step. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, Ender Ender was kind of a dull character for me in this book. I, I mean, he definitely like, wasn't the main protagonist. Which is good. I mean, I think it's it's tempting for authors when they have a gold mine like Ender to like keep coming back to it. And trust me, Orson Scott Card has. But <laughs> he's very very uh, pretty much only writes in this universe at this point. But um, at least like it's good to expand to sort of other characters and let like new like a new generation kind of take over the story. I mean, I have never found the characters of I would say almost the trilogy that follows Ender's Game like the Lusitania part of the story to be particularly interesting or fun or enjoyable like I feel like I I had a lot of irritation with Mira last time I read this book and I still kind of did this time but like I, I feel like I sympathized with him a little bit more I mean there's no beating around the bush like his situation is the worst like it's pretty freaking terrible um, oh yeah going from being like this really strong healthy young man you kind of got everything going you're in love like all that to okay now you're a cripple and the person you loved is your sister and like you're gonna try to get a fresh start by leaving the planet for 30 years but like it's not even really 30 years to you so really you're gonna come back and everyone's a little bit over it and you're still in the middle of it like the whole situation is pretty freaking awful and he just honestly in retrospect, a pretty good job of, like, keeping it together. Like, he, he loses it a couple times. Like, he loses it on Keem, but it ends up being, like, a really, uh, really therapeutic thing. And in a way, it's really good, because it was, like, the only time he really talked to his brother before Keem died, unfortunately. Yeah. Which, it, I, like, forgot a lot about this book, and it was great, because I really got to experience it all fresh. Well, that's good. That's always a beautiful experience. It really is. I know. My little goldfish memory is serving me well. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> I, as I told you yesterday, I was re-listening to our Speaker for the Dead episode because I didn't want to, like, have too many of the same points that we hit. But, honestly, a lot of the points were Novenia sucks and, like, space Catholics. And I'm like, damn it, that's a lot of this book, too. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. All, it's not all of this book, but it's definitely a part of this book. Definitely. Now, to that point... I think let's talk about the book. I mean, okay, yes. What would you like to start with? Well, you I thought we about, were talking about the book, but okay. Well, I mean, like specifics of the book. Right now, we're talking about like I don't know. We've been talking about like how the book is overarching, how its philosophy is. I think we should actually talk about some details of the book. Okay, go on. This specifically was spurred on by the fact that you were talking about space Catholics, and <laughs> I found one of the more interesting parts of the book were after they went outside and they came back and the bishop had to deal with the idea of two people just kind of appearing and also Miro's body being destroyed and rebuilt. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. Because he's uh, like, okay, this one I can handle. We're just going to baptize you again just to be safe. That's fine. 
You're definitely cool, cool. like a soul that I know about, you know? Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. So I found the idea of Iowa's interesting because it seems to not be the same as a soul, but it feels the same as a soul. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, do you understand I think... the distinction? Well, between a soul and Iowa? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the idea of the soul as being more of a spiritual uh, kind of metaphysical idea and the Iowa are something theoretically they could point to in the body and say, this is the Iowa. Um, I mean, obviously it's not that easy. And I think... As you're of, saying, though, it's like a physical part because it's, it's that you're controlling phylot, right? Yeah, it's the phylot that has such a dominant... Personality is the wrong word. A dominant structure? But it is yeah. capable of holding the pattern of the body. Right. Or like whatever. sort of corralling. It's it's an officer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's, little it's a good enlisted one. Phylots. Yeah, fo- follow me, little phylots. <laughs> and it's leading the way. It's a shepherd. I think it's definitely got some parallels to the soul, and I right. think it might be kind of the metaphysical, the, the the physical explanation of the soul in this universe. Right. But it was definitely. I think I guess you're right. It's sort of more of a technical term than a spiritual term. Yeah, although what I found cool is the idea that if you have this Iowa and you have you can say all living things, all well, all things probably. I I don't think it was ever cleared up. I think it's all things have this Iowa that control that holds the pattern of everything in it. Right. And just living things are really good Iowas. <laughs> Those are the real cream of the crop. Yeah, the real highbrow Iowas that can the look... Ivy League educated Iowas. Right, yeah, they can hold a pattern of say a hive or a human. A hive is a lot, man. It's yeah, a lot for one little particle to handle. Not even a particle, CC, a string. Is it a string? I mean, real. Yeah, that's kind of. I think that's parallel we talked about in the last episode, wasn't it? How uh, lo- phylots are kind of like string theory. I don't think we did talk about that in the last episode. Maybe that was the original Ender's Game episode. Oh, phylots are totally string theory. Okay. Well, it's the whole, I mean, the whole twining thing. Well, that's obviously, like, you mean, actual uh, kind of, we have no idea, like, if that that's not part of the, the, the string theory theory. Mm. But, like, the idea that all mass in the universe is made up of sing, of these little one-dimensional strings, and it's, like, vibration or it's bends dictate what form it can take with other ones that that's string theory huh interesting um we have a mostly dead podcast about science and string theories where the episodes are covered, or the topics are covered. that is true <laughs> is it mostly dead or is it dead Peter? it's mostly dead there are <laughs> there are plans you've, you've um, been mostly dead all day <laughs> anyway what so my the part about the Iowas I found most interesting is that mm-hmm. it provides a very provable common ground between all intelligent life. That's a good point. Yeah. Like from Jane to the buggers to the Pequeninos to the humans. Well, what's interesting is they don't bring it up in the context of the Descalada, do they? They don't ask, like, does the Descalada have Iowas? Well, one. Per, I guess. You can write it in my plural. Yeah. I mean... Like, it's not... I mean, 
it's not really discussed. I guess because at that point they were like, yeah, they might be intelligent, but they're Varelsa, so like this is what just has to be. Yeah, and I think one of to kind of transition to, you know, Demosthenes' hierarchy of species. <clears throat> one of the most annoying parts of this entire book <laughs> is oh, what's her name? Clara. Um, yeah, Quara's campaign for the Descalada. Ugh. Yes. Now I get where she's coming from, but yes. the fact that she just like doesn't have any respect for any of the people in her life that are trying to give her advice on this is so irksome to me and so grating. I like can't forgive her for it. Yeah. Like what the hell? This is. Like you we were, were talking... like surrounded by straight up geniuses who right. are thoughtful, sensitive people who have brought peace to not two, but three species now. Like, maybe take a breath and have some deference. Yeah, and like, I get it, right? Like, if this is an intelligent life and everyone's like fighting to protect the Pekininos so, you know, stringently. I get the idea of not wanting to see it come to the same fate uh, of dying because, you know, maybe it's intelligent. Yeah. But. Yeah. I think kind of her conversation with Planter really throws it out there in that the um, kind of the the main indication that that is Varelsa and she's arguing, like, well, if, like, you know, why do we have to die? Or why does it have to die? We could just die. Which is crazy, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. But it's like, at that point, once you're Varelsa to each other, you are, effectively, it's just whoever is stronger and has the ability to wipe the other one out. Yeah, you pretty much have moral permission to do whatever you have to do. Which I think, I mean, which which I think is the whole point of that hierarchy. Like, yes, right. yes, to make every effort to build bridges between yourself and other intelligent species but once all that has failed survive right Right. and that's that's sort of a concept that we come back to again and again in sci-fi is um the idea of like what makes it true alien because so much of sci-fi has like sort of human like intelligent life where yeah they might not look like you and learning their language is going to be really hard but like in the end you can talk to each other, um, and it just—it's not—it's not usually that difficult. Like talking to the hive crew was way harder than talking to the piggies. I mean, yeah, she had to do all that stuff where she had to like basically create a new intelligent life to act as an interpreter. Accidentally. <laughs> Accidentally, but like that's what is what happened. Right, and I mean, like even even then, she's talking directly to Ender's brain during that conversation. And is still having so much trouble making herself understood because some of the concepts that are just taken for granted by the buggers, the the hives, are just still too foreign to a human mind. Like, yeah, we'll just call a hive, the, you know, the hive queen from beyond. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> You're gonna know what now? <laughs> Sorry, wait, run that by me again. <laughs> wait, from where? From beyond. From, from you where know, it from, comes from. <laughs> you know, from the out, from the yeah, from where it comes from. Oh, where is that? Well, you know, it's everywhere. <laughs> everywhere and nowhere, you know. You know, that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. I just, like, I felt her frustration when she's like, 
the thing that gets called. Like, I don't know what you want me to say. That's what it's, it's what called. It's what we call. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, to that end, like, the buggers were obviously incredibly advanced, and in many ways, like, humans got reliable starflight from the buggers. But the yeah, buggers, sure. the buggers, like, idea of biology... Like, they're, a lot of their technology was so far behind the humans, not because they didn't progress for 3,000 years, but because it was always behind the humans. Because they didn't have to, that wasn't part of their thought process. They didn't have to worry about it. Yeah, because if a worker is dying, then tough shit. <laughs> yeah, and they, well, then also they were evolved to automatically fight any disease, basically. Yeah, they had, like, a really advanced immune system, so that's yeah, so nice. Yeah, so all she had to do was make new workers with the right immune system adjustments, and she's done. Right, yeah. She's like, oh, well, that's replaceable. Like, growing back fingernails. Yeah, exactly. So, like... And I guess the workers kind of, prevent, like, protect the hive queen from harm, so she doesn't really encounter much. Right. That will wound her. Although, and then, but she has that gland in her body, so even then, it's probably fine. Oh, you mean, like, yeah, physical harm? Yeah, I mean, any kind of harm, really. But, okay. yeah. So, I mean, that, that adds into the alienness of thought the alienness of technology and you're right i mean like the the high queen was a truly alien species the pecaninos were weird yeah like they did shit like freezing when they were ner- like when they were nervous <laughs> because they were like a tree but but we have animals that do that on earth you're right famously so, like, they were weird animals but they yeah. weren't they were intelligent animals to us. That, I feel like, is the perception. Yes. Like, if a slow loris could talk to you. And, like, I, th- I think that there's, there's a brief nod to the sort of paternalistic way that humans seem to view the Pecaninos. And how the Pecaninos are kind of pissed about it. They're like, actually, no, like, we are kind of a warrior race. Like, we have a lot of wisdom. Yeah, like, we're behind you technologically, but that's just because we literally are behind you in time. So, like, there's no reason for you to look down on us just because we're short. Like, don't call us little ones, you condescending assholes. <laughs> no, you're right. I wouldn't even call it a nod. That was a full-on conversation. Like, yeah, like. but but it never came up again. It was just, that's like, true. that one time. Like, the forest by um, by Milagre doesn't seem to feel that way. That was all uh, Warmaker's forest, wasn't it? Uh... I think Planter and him had that conversation. Oh, oh yeah, Planter totally did. You're right, you're right. Planter, Planter and Warmaker both talked about it. Yeah, but like definitely, there, there's definitely an idea among the piggies that like we don't want to be called little ones. They're kind of tired of that shit. Yeah, but it's it's also hard because like humans are giving them all this technology and like advancement and like they're literally they literally are dependent on humans and hives to like see them through technologically. So, like, it doesn't mean they deserve to be condescended to, but it's kind of, like, I can see how that would chafe after a while, after a couple decades of that. Yeah, and, I mean, there's only so much the, um, I feel like there's only so much they're willing to push back. Like, it's, like, there's probably a while for, like, man, this is getting really old. Like, after, like, five years, they're probably, like, this fucking sucks. But, <laughs> but uh, we do kind of need them. Yeah, we do need the humans. So, yeah. like, you know, I get it. And right. they didn't want to push back. But once they pushed back, the humans were like, oh, yeah, you're right. We're dicks. Right. Right. And, I mean, who is who is it that made the point at the end where they were like, oh, good news. Like, 
the Picadinos have agreed that they're going to let us use the Recolada, and somebody's like, well, they didn't really have a choice. Like, you could have just done it, at least this way they pretend that it's their idea, basically. I don't remember who that kind of, That was probably, like, Ella and um, Grego or something. Yeah, something to that effect. The Grego was probably the... It was, they didn't really have a choice. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Grego is the reason Quar was so terrible. I it mean, was, like, strictly sibling rivalry. No, that's true. They that's just brought out the terrible in each other. Yeah, they were angry at each other. They just wanted to prove each other wrong. And in the end, it sucked for everyone. They were basically American politics. Which I feel like always comes up, and it's always my fault, and I'm sorry, but... Yeah, you suck. But, like, you can hear them just, like, putting each other in the most extreme point of view, and then each of them, like, digging into that point of view. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, it was definitely completely polarized. Yeah. It was, it was like, it was rough. Rough to watch. But it made them both, like, more stubborn. Yeah. And, I mean, it was definitely irritating. Um... To watch that happen and have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Especially because, like, it, that whole family... Is the worst. Yeah, with their Doliano. internal drama, like, causes regular issues on the scale of species dying out. <laughs> right. It's like you the fucking Skywalkers. You can't get over your issues with your brother, and so now, like, three intelligent species might die. If you count Jane. No, the Ribera family are the Skywalkers of Orson Sky Cards Universe. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, less charismatic. Yeah, except for Ender, who's not really one, but he is technically one. Sort of, yeah. He is, by law, one of them. Ugh. <laughs> Ender. Ender and Navinia, Peter. I don't get it. It's I know. such an unearned relationship. Like, oh, it er- never made any sense in this story. Time to release more rage, because oh, this, is the bu- this is the book where she ultimately crosses me. This is where she turns. She's still kind of sympathetic in the last book. Yeah, in the last book, I'm like, all right, yeah, you're being beaten and you had a horrible life. That fucking sucks. You're an orphan, kind of an outcast. Ender is here. He's going to help you heal and you'll have a beautiful, loving relationship. Oh, God, it got worse. She's so shitty to him. She's so shitty. And, like, I. Like, all of the problems. Listen, I'm going to get on a relationship high horse for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) The reason it's a cliche. Is because it's true. Communication is so important in relationships. And Ender's like, oh, in 30 years, I never realized that she had a problem with me talking to Jane. And like, yes, Ender, maybe you should have noticed. Like, you're supposed to be super empathetic and like totally see right through people. How could you not see it? Because she's not that subtle. Okay. But also, Novenia, like, I don't think it's invalid to be like, hey, like, why are you having conversations with somebody when we're in bed together? Like, just be present with me and, like, shut that off. That's not an unfair ask. Just yeah, ask. It's not like when, like you feel like you're laying in bed with someone and, like, you're on your phone. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly like that. Yeah. It except, is, <laughs> Jane except. is the Fire Emblem heroes of their relationship. Wow, this is really targeted. What is Alba playing this one? <laughs> hey, put that down. You're with me right now. Be it's present. Fine. <laughs> it's fine. He'll do it. Ender would have done it. It's all you need to do. You don't need to flip out after 30 years and leave. <laughs> it's like the most conservative Catholic response. <laughs> I guess. It's is like... It, is it? <laughs> you no, know, she's not willing to say something out loud to, like, you know, rock the boat, but just yeah. lets it simmer. 
Yeah, and then it's like, just kidding. I'm going to join an order of monks now. Dude, <laughs> I like wanted to slap her across the face when she's like, when Ender's like, what? So like, I, you know, for your companionship, I have to like no longer be with you physically. And she's like, well, my, my sin for so many years was adultery. And I'm like, that wasn't Ender's sin. Yeah. Why does he have to do penance for you, asshole? Oh, so not only does he have to help you emotionally, he has to help your soul. And also, it's been like 30 years, and you're a Catholic, you could just go to confession, <laughs> get it absolved. Yeah, you probably regret it by this point. Just go ahead and, like, peace out. Right, right. Peace out your sins. Like, oh my god, she's just like the worst wife ever. I hate her so much. I hate her so much. <laughs> and she goes to the, like, she joins the fucking order. She goes to a nunnery. <laughs> I hate it. But, I know, and you're not even supposed to be able to join the order without your spouse. Well, she and yet, didn't. Like, she somehow does. No, she just lives because with them. Because she like, doesn't she, give a fuck about her spouse. She just lives with them. She outright says, I can't join them unless you come with me. Yeah, but and I'm so, not leaving, though. But so she killed Chips and to joining a religious order. That's what's so <laughs> wild. Like, Ender is not particularly religious. Oh. He, I mean, he literally is, like, the savior figure of an entirely different religion, so there's that. Okay, but, 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 he did promise that if he ever converted to uh, a, a religion, he'd choose Catholicism. To, like, the the uh, the mind, the founder of the Order of the Minds of Christ. <laughs> okay, fine. That, that's a little nugget from Speaker of the Dead. <laughs> there you go, a little callback. A little, little callback to the last episode. <laughs> yeah. No, but, like, he goes to Mass on Sundays with her, whatever. Like, all of a sudden, it's, well, you can see me once a month, but if you want to, like, actually spend time with me, you have to join this order, and either way, you're not going to get any. She had that answer ready. I know! He was like, well, how, like, could I see you otherwise? Like, could I visit you if I don't join? And she's like, once a month. Like, fuck you, Novena. Like, she is a total taker. Like, I don't see her giving anything to him. And maybe it's just that they were supposed to, like, I mean, it seems like they had 30 good years, right? Like, it's implied that they had 30 good years. And I assume some of that was Novenia being, like... Sane. Sane, but also, like, giving to her husband. I don't mean, like, sexually or anything weird like that, but you know what I mean? Just, like, having generosity of spirit towards the person that you say you love more than anyone. Like... You're not supposed to be like your marriage isn't supposed to be all about you. Like yes, stand up for yourself, make what you, what's important to you known, but like, don't don't only take. You cannot be the only person who has like room to have emotional moments in your relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah, you both and, like, get to have these emotions. Somehow, I don't see Ender doing that. Being like, "Oh, I'm like feeling jealous or insecure or anything." And like, yeah, it's probably frustrating being married to somebody as sensibly perfect as Ender is, but still. Yeah, exactly. But still. Like and, I don't know. Maybe that's why she never raised hay about Jane. She's <laughs> just like, "Well, I guess you can have this one thing because he does everything else for me." But then she still, like, was super resentful about it anyway. So, like, it doesn't count as giving if you're going to eventually leave your husband for it. Yeah, it wasn't, like, after 30 years she was like, hey, listen, I'd really rather you didn't do that anymore. She's like, after 30 years she's like, hey, listen, fuck off, I'm joining a nunnery. You, like, straight up, I thought you loved me. I thought our relationship was real. You never loved me. You're just a big manipulative fraud. Like, she doesn't just say, I'm mad at you. She She just is like, hey, you're a shitty person. I'm out. With, like, no room for Ender to defend himself, 
No fucking, like, listen, they even go to Catholic marriage counseling, a.k.a. talking to the priest about it. Like, they just, they didn't do anything. <laughs> She's just like, I'm done. And it's kind of wild that the children of the mind would take her in like that, because, like, they are an order of married people. Okay, okay, okay. Her going to the, like, her living with them does not mean that she joined the order. Okay, and do I- you understand how, like, sanctuary works, though? Because I never really have. Like, is that an option available to me? If I'm just, like, one out of life, I could just go to an IHM nunnery and be like, hey, I mean, can I pro- live with you guys? Like, probably. I guess. I, I don't mean, know if people do it. Not for, like, a long time, but, like, I bet, like, if you were like, hey, I just need, like, some time away from my life, they'd probably be like, yeah, come on. What's up? Yeah. You need to pray and do dishes, but, like, other than that, you can chill. Yeah, pray, do dishes, and cover those ankles. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. That's probably true, but, like... Yes, I mean, I guess because they're a religious order, they can't really turn away a woman in need. They're not only a religious order, they're, like, the only religious order on the planet. Yes. So. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're a priest, but, like, I don't get the feeling that there's, like, a nun- there's an actual nunnery somewhere. <laughs> like, they have their monastery, and I think that's it. Yeah, no, I agree. So, you know, that's just... All right. I think it's hilarious how much time we spend talking about the space Catholics in this book. Just such a bad person. She's such a selfish, terrible person. I mean, she is a terrible person. And and Oh my god. Oh my god. And she blamed Ender for keep dying. Oh yeah, that was so... I I get it. Well, I don't get it. twisted. I can understand, you know, grieving parent, really hard, and the one person you think he might have listened to didn't try to get him to stay. Okay. But fuck but off, Novina. Even Ender's like, I don't have any power over him. Like, of all of your children, I have the least influence over him. Like, yeah, they even talk about how, like, him and Ender came to a detente. They're like, look, <laughs> I respect you as an equal, but, like, we're not, you know. Yes, we are both adult men. We are, well, we're both I, adult men, and we are both men of our, kind of our own spirituality. Right. And, you know, that's it. Like, that's fine. They, right, they've they come never to really... I mean, like, maybe they loved each other, but, like, I think they not... definitely loved each other. But not in, like, a... I mean, Ender loves everyone, let's be honest. Well, I think Kim like, loved him. Akeem, and Akeem seems to also be a pretty loving person. He's so cool in this book. I wish he didn't He got die. so much off, he like, so oh, cool. man. He came... He, he wins most improved Hebera Award. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the running was, uh, not very tough this year, but he still won. <laughs> The last 30 years, we've seen no notable improvement. I was pretty uh, yeah. sure Grego was going to pee under his lap in this book. <laughs> so, Come at him with a knife. Here we are. Key, I mean, number one. He did very specifically cause, like, a genocidal rage mob to happen, so. Intentionally. Intentionally. Well, I mean, that part wasn't... Int- actually, well, no. No, no, the, no. The, the genocidal rage mob was intentional. It just sort of got mistargeted. Yeah, he wanted God, exactly what an that asshole. <laughs> I just hate those people, Peter. <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> Navinia's a bad person, and she raised bad people. Ella and Miro are okay; they can stay. And like, like Quara might chill. I don't know if she ever chills, but she could chill. Yeah, when she's she... not getting like prodded by her brother. I and mean, she did do the right thing in the end. They could all chill. And I kind of get where she's coming from with the, like, it just seems like this is, like, this is something that's important to me and no one else is taking it seriously. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's very frustrating. Right, and so I can understand that. 
we come from a big family. <laughs> like it, it can be hard to be heard in a big family. Yeah, and if you are if you have something you're very focused and very compa- like really passionate about and no one's hearing you and like they're actively working against it. <laughs> I can understand being very angry. Peter, do you want to talk about something? No. If it is, <laughs> we touched because we talked about it before the podcast. <laughs> so I think where she's coming from is completely valid. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Come on, everyone's supposed to probe Rivera. <laughs> Fuck you, Ella. <laughs> Ella, I mean, Ella's fine, but she's, like, a pretty flat character. She doesn't really change between books. I mean, yeah, she's still the peacemaker. She's still, you know, she is. And by far, the, the best one is Oliado, can we just say. Okay, I loved, 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 loved when Valentine went, wait. Valentine? Valentine. <laughs> that was weird. That was weird. <laughs> <laughs> when Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when Valentine went to uh, Oliado's house and talked with him and his wife. Yes, it was beautiful and, in so many ways. Oh, God. When, when Oliado was like, yeah, I mean, you know, Ender is great, but, like, he became who I decided I wanted to be, and that is just a great father. I know. And he's like, you know, my wife and I, I forget her name. Uh, my wife and I, like, we go to work and, you know, we have to go make a living and contribute to the colony, but our primary f- goals are to come home and spend time with our children. I'm like, this is beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's so It's so, so beautiful. And this is why he's, like, the chillest one who has the best mental health, obviously. And, <laughs> like, he, he's got it figured out. Like, you don't, you can have a career and, like, a, a thriving family, obviously, but I think you just saw how, like ambition and science just chewed his family up and spat them out and put them through so much hell and like not to mention extremely high stakes high pressure science like the xenobiologists are responsible for keeping the entire freaking colony alive because the Descalot is trying to get them and the uh, xenologers are the only people who were allowed to interface with this alien race for a long long time like it's very, it's very high pressure stuff, and Oliada's like, you know what? That's not going to be my life's work. My life's work is going to be having a happy family, and that is like such a beautiful thing, and I love it so so much. Yeah, it's and I, really I feel wonderful. like most people could benefit from that point of view. Like again, it doesn't mean you can't have a career that's successful, but keep your eye on the prize here, man. Like, what what? What will you remember in the end, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's, you know, kind of about the, the relationships you build and not about the career you have. Right. Like, this and I bet of, Oliado's kids get along much better than Dominia's kids. Right, this, I mean, because looks like, like a real, like, you know, we talked a lot on this podcast about, like, how our dad is great. <laughs> yes. and like And, like, what? It had, like, you know, has a good career, but very clearly... His priority is on us and the rest of our siblings and the family. Yeah, to the extent that he doesn't like to talk about his career achievements. Because he doesn't think they're important. To the extent that he actually actively hides them. (laughs) He's very elusive about them. (laughs) (laughs) We have to find them out through Googling. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. (laughs) 
but you know, to him, it's just not. It's not what he's most proud. It's of. It's literally just not what he's what's important to him. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's just like Oliato, and I think it's so important to think about. You know, as as well, especially like you are about to have to start dealing with this. That's true. And eventually, you mentioned I mentioned it on the podcast, but yes, that is true. <laughs> oh man, that's awkward. I just did you want to have like a grand reveal? <laughs> Surprise! Our special episode. <laughs> We're gonna do some sort of baby-based sci-fi book. <laughs> Children of Men, maybe. <laughs> that would have been better. Damn it. Okay. But yes, listeners, I am uh, expecting a baby in May. So. So our release schedule is going to go to shit. <laughs> so if you think we're unreliable now, <laughs> wait until Cece has a baby. You won't believe what we have in store for you. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, no, you're you're right. Like that that sort of thing does speak to me at this like stage in my life where, like, I am happy with my career and plan on continuing my career. But like, priorities should be at least reexamined pretty regularly on that front, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you and Albert both have thriving careers. Mm-hmm. You're both expected to be very successful in your areas, right? And <laughs> you know, have and be very comfortable and. Yeah, be secure. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to, like, not, but what I'm trying to get at is, like, neither one of you are at a point where you're like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job as, like, you know, uh, I work at Lowe's or something, or I'm a foreman on a, you're like, but, like, right. and the other one has, like, a nice, cushy job. So, because neither of you are going to quit your jobs to be at home, because that's just not who you are. Right. And... And, but you will have to, like, you know, make a point of, of, of... Ensuring that the job doesn't become priority over family. Yes. Thank you for making my words sound better. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what is, where is he going with this? No, you, you tied the knot well. But you're right, though. It has to be a deliberate effort. And, yeah, it's it's just a good to have the reminder in the form of Oliato and all his wisdom. Yes. Let's get some fan art of Oliato and put it, like, in the nursery. Dude, I've tried to find some. What, really? No. Yeah. Not that hard. But I've looked... <laughs> Not for the nursery. That wasn't really my thought. <laughs> cool, because I was so on board with this. <laughs> I actually have the Lusitania theme nursery in mind, so. It's going to be like horrifying bug monsters and also like kind of weird, uncanny little pig things. It's going to be fun. <laughs> oh, God. Well, good. I'm glad. Um... Oh lord. Okay. Um, we talking about something to okay. read the book. Okay, 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 okay. I've got one. Other than the good and the bad of the Rivera family, I, I wish to re acknowledge the excellent work that Bishop Peregrino is trying to do in adopting the Pecaninos into the church. I know. I like found it pretty interesting, honestly. I because it was so good. Like that Keem is like the apostle to the Pecaninos. Yeah. Is, like, universally respected. Yeah, it's so cool. Now, this was interesting. I found this to be one of my favorite parts of this. Yeah. When you're dealing with a planet and a species like the Pecaninos, who have this, you know, communications backbone that's international, Mm -hmm. such as the father trees, right? Yes. That, That makes it so much harder to do what he's doing. Because all, if you look at the examples of heresy in the early church, mm-hmm. most of the time it was the result of information outstripping proper preaching. 
Right. Or like isolated communities developing their own philosophies. Right. I mean, you're there for like a couple weeks and then they continue to think about these things and they come to conclusions which are not like the accepted conclusions of the church. Yeah, or they ask some questions and no one's there with a good answer so they start figuring it on their own, you know? Right. And that's made so much worse by a network of communication on a planet Secondhand that, communication. Right. On a planet that effectively doesn't have religion before they arrive. As far as we know. Yeah, that's true. They don't really talk about... They have, like... They have their ancestor hero. worship. They have mythology, of. but not really worship. Yeah. Yeah, it's not even ancestor worship because their ancestors, like their heroic ancestors, are basically all alive still. Right. Right. Yeah, a lot of them are still around. So. Yeah, which is kind of like why. So like the the knowledgers were like, oh, they have an ancestor worship religion. Cool. But I was actually like <laughs> real <laughs> right. the whole time. But except they're actually like inhabiting those trees. Um. Yeah. They are those trees. They are that. That tree is named Jim. Yeah. <laughs> this is Jimbo. This is Jimbo the tree. The tree <laughs> and Pretty so much. that that I feel like provides a completely unique difficulty for Keem and we see obviously the result of that well and also they the sort of like top class of of the Pecaninos are um, the father trees obviously and the father trees are very philosophical and they, they just kind of chill and, like, think all day, and their job is to, like, be wise. So it makes a lot of sense that they would take this religion and spend a lot of time thinking about how it can apply to them. And they talk about a couple different points that I found really interesting, like the idea that um, when you are a sort of oppressed, for lack of a better word, people, you will come up with a myth to try to make yourself... To try to, like, represent yourself as a chosen people instead. That's a um, good point. Yeah, so that's, that's like, a point that Miro, I think, made. Um, but also, like, obviously there's a lot of... I mean, it, it, it must be kind of weird for the Peganinos to adopt Christianity and be like, okay, but where's our savior? Because it seems like the humans had, like, the chosen people of the old Testament God and the humans had were the ones who were visited by Jesus Christ. And like, so if God loves all of his creation, where's our like corporeal representation of God's love. And it makes a lot of sense that they would look around and be like, well, it's the Descalada because like the, the whole idea of the third life and like passing through this gauntlet, like to be sort of elevated is, I mean, it's a very spiritual sounding experience. So, like, I can see where they're coming from with that argument very much. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of the dangerous part of heresies. When they make, right. they, they kind appealing. of make a weird amount of sense. Right, for sure. And, you know, for a obviously isolated faith community like Lusitania, uh, all the more so. Yeah. Catholics aren't really down with interpretation. Nope. Not really. It's not... It's not the most Catholic thing. <laughs> Unless it comes to tradition. Anyway, that I don't want you to like, bow down in catechism. Um, <laughs> not like last time. Not like last time. <laughs> Although, to, to kind of sing the praises of Bishop Peregrino again, because obviously he wasn't a perfect man. Obviously his, his uh, dealing with young Valentine 
is yeah. an example of this. He just didn't know how to deal with it and wouldn't even let her kiss his ring, which seems like kind of an unnecessary dick move. Yeah. It's like, again, not baptizing her, but, like, refusing to have contact with her is a little much. Yeah, come on, man, really? Uh, but, like, I can kind of sympathize with that priest that pulled him aside, and he's just like, this is hard. And I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's pretty hard. And I get it. Like, these like these philosophical questions and these issues that you guys as a community are facing completely cut off from, you know, the hierarchy, at least Bishop Peregrino, the Catholic authority on the planet. Right. Yeah, because I guess they can't really talk to the Pope, right? Because all the ansibles are shut down. Right, exactly. Because they have secret gene communications with the Pope, but I don't think they do. I think that probably would have been mentioned specifically. Yeah, probably. I think there, there's there's an implication that they will eventually consult the Pope, but until they can, can that uh, they're just stuck with. I like, mean, basically, Bishop Peregrino being yeah. the head of the Catholic Church of Lusitania. Which, I mean, he literally is. Yeah. Like, all of Lusitania is his flock, so he's responsible for making all these decisions. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a very interesting character. Like, like you said, like, he definitely has some moments where, like, come on, man. <laughs> You're not being particularly cool. But for the most part, you do definitely see a a religious figure, like, trying to do his best to do, like, what is truly, I mean, comes from a place of goodness and... Like, wanting people to be welcomed into God's love, right? So, yeah, it's and, nice. You know, it's kind of the ideal of a religious figure. Like, yeah. we can't expect reasonably that religious figures of any stripe are going to be perfect. Obviously, right now, we're especially being reminded of, <laughs> of the issues religious figures have. They're uh, extremely far from perfect, it would seem. They are far them. too human in many cases. Um, but yeah. they are all human. And so... You know, it, it kind of it serves as a good reminder that Bishop Peregrino is doing his best, and yeah, he does like he makes a lot of decisions that if it happened in real life, I'd be like, hell yeah, Catholic Church, good job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta adapt, right? Right, and you know, not like the Catholic Church is particularly great, there, but whatever. Uh, yeah, but I feel like some of the times we've been the most adaptable is when trying to bring um, like indigenous peoples in and stuff like that. But you remember when? I mean, not to, like, bring up Speaker of Dead shit, because we talked about it, but, like, yeah. when he was, like, everyone was like, I don't know, we're gonna, like, do this for these two Xenologers, like, is that really worth it? And they're like, well, you could preach to the piggies, and the bishop's like, oh, Ooh, I could, couldn't I? <laughs> Go on. <laughs> the lyrics perked up. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's like, never mind, I'll kill the Ansible myself. <laughs> Bishop Peregrino's seen later walking towards the Ansible with an axe. <laughs> it's just like a baseball bat. <laughs> Spiked club. Uh-huh, yeah. Like, no, 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 we're just going to turn it off. It's fine. <laughs> That's a switch. We might need that later. There's a switch right here. <laughs> oh, man. Um, it was very on board. Anyway. So, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, like, and, and he's not, it, it does seem like he's not just trying to be like, okay, well, here's Catholicism, and you have to do it, like, exactly this way. Like, they do sort of adapt it to the idea of, like, well, so there's, like, the little mothers, and, and what did they say? Like, they all got baptized before they died and stuff like that. Yeah, they would, like, open up and sprinkle in holy water and shit. Yeah. <laughs> they adapted the sacraments, you know? They they made it work. Yeah, like, marriage is weird, but, like, other than that, they made everything work. Yeah. Yeah, right? Marriage is still a little bit questionable. And um, there were priests. There were ordained priests among the piggies. Yeah, and that's really great. 
and I enjoyed that. Super cool. Yeah, I know. I enjoyed it a lot, too. Okay, let me see what else happened in this book. Um, very... uh, we haven't talked about Path even a little bit. Oh, shit. We haven't talked about Path at all, and we haven't talked about Thousands of Light Travel at all. Yeah. All right, let's go. Okay. Path Okay, Path is interesting. It can be grating, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, it can be very frustrating. So we actually we had uh, Seth reach out about the audiobook version of... Um, of this book. Seth, Seth from Who Goes There podcast. Yeah, Seth from Who Goes There podcast. That we guessed it on. Yes. Okay, Susie. I'm just saying. <laughs> People might not have listened to the episodes where we've called out Seth before. That's true. Uh, definitely a great show, though. I will go over and listen to that. But he had ta- reached out to us uh, when we announced we were doing Zoomside about uh, basically you know, his th- kind of his thoughts on it. We had talked to him before about this. And he was like, he raised, he was like, you know what? I found it like it was a little bit too English. And I don't think we had that version. Wait, no, we did though. Did we? Yeah, okay. Ching Zhao's was not English, but Wang Mu's was. You know what? You're right. Wang Mu's was bad. Wang Mu's was really bad. It was like, and as Seth pointed out, he's like, it was that much worse because Ching Zhao's wasn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, you're right. He did point like, that out. Yeah, it was just sort of like a, like a, Sort of, I guess, a stuffy sort of like generic accent with like properly pronounced yeah, Chinese names. Definitely wasn't exactly like not a native English speaker, but <laughs> yeah, but nothing like weird or racial. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> You're right. Wang was, was bad. so weird. I like couldn't listen to this chapter. <laughs> I wonder if that was an attempt, a misguided attempt, but an attempt to make her sound more rural. Oh my god, Peter. Maybe you're right. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I think they were like... Because I'm sitting there, I'm like, why would they direct it like this? Like, why would they directed do... this. Someone this is an ensemble said, production. Someone definitely looked at her and was like, hey, Wang Mu, listen. Good job. We need a little more racist. <laughs> really laid on, girlfriend. We yeah. don't care. Yes, yes, yes. Do you know anything about this book's author? You know he don't care. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> <laughs> I would okay, but for in all seriousness, if we have any Chinese listeners, I would be really curious for your thoughts on Path, because as a white person, I'm like, yeah, it seems it cool, seems fine, it seems fine, but I have no idea. I'm like, is this a I never sure. <laughs> like, I would I would just be very curious for some outside guidance on this one. <laughs> oh man, Path is weird. Where you stand on it, Peter? <laughs> I. Uh... I thought it was interesting. I mean, I don't think that it was a... I don't... I did not get the impression that it was, like, a condescending or, like, judgmental representation of Chinese culture. I can't attest to its accuracy, although I did look up a little bit of stuff, and I know that Wang Mu is actually, um, like, a, a deity of Chinese traditional religion, like, not just one that was made up for the... Book. Oh, not like a deity that was made up for the book, but an actual deity. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like Chinese mythological and, religious I mean, figures. You know, like that. Mm, I, I some of the stuff that was in there, I was like, yeah, I've definitely heard this before, but I don't know. Like you said, I don't know nearly enough about any of that to make any sort of judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like whether this is accurate, whether this is like a a likely seeming picture of like if it kind of traditionalistic society of Chinese people were to make their own planet. Could this be what it would look like? I don't know. I mean, obviously we have like the whole uh, 
sort of forward thrust that happened because of the whatever you want to call it, like the, the genetic modifications that were done to the people of Path to give them the God Spoken. Like that obviously is, I, I'm not like, oh, you know, like, uh, like Chinese religion. <laughs> How some people are God Spoken have to be clean or whatever. Right, right. So obviously that stuff is not really under question for accuracy so much, but I would be curious about like the rest of it, the aspects of like ancestor worship and um, duty to the gods and, you know, the divine mandate and... and all of that. I mean, I know divine mandate plays a role in a lot of world religions. Oh yeah. I assume Chinese religion is no different. Um, <clears throat> but I, I did always wonder what made Han Feitza so sure that Congress did have the mandate of heaven. I guess just because they were allowed to continue ruling. I mean, for three. I guess he didn't need to like time. cleanse himself whenever he helped them. Right. So he felt like he must be doing what the gods asked him to do. That seems likely. Yeah, that makes sense. What? He's like, go on. I mean, I, I just want to say, like, the, the the sneakiness and shittiness of Congress in this. Oh, they're very sneaky and I, shitty. It seems like Path would have ended up probably a conservative world. Like, definitely Chinese culture would have been uh, their culture. Mm-hmm. But not so religious as it is. Yeah. But there's definitely like, you know, like the God Spoken are a different class. They're treated as the holiest individuals on the planet. Um, oh, yeah. They're definitely a nobility. And, you know, yes. well, the wealthy will always end up forming a certain kind of nobility because that's how the world tends to work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like they would have been like elevated to the untouchable status of God Spoken if not for these modifications that Congress did. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really get to see any sort of normal rich people. It seemed like it was kind of God-spoken and, like, peasants. You're right, there's got to be much. normal rich people. And it was even weird when the one, the like, the newscaster was talking. And I was like, I, I was wondering about the newscaster. I'm like, what's your story, girlfriend? I was like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Like, there's definitely... I guess you're middle class? <laughs> yeah. Like, comparatively? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, it was confusing. It was definitely weird. But, like, yeah. you know, there's obviously another side of that planet that we don't see, you know, as the observers that are hanging out with the Godspoken the whole time. Well, the Godspoken and then, like, one very poor peasant girl. Basically. Right, the rural person and the Godspoken. Yeah, we get the two extremes of society. Yes. And um, that's definitely an issue. I did, I did like, in the end, so it was cool that i guess they were able to i mean it's it cool that they could cure the gods but no but i mean i like the idea that um that jane pointed out where she's like hey listen like yeah ella's working on the descalada thing but like it could be really helpful for her to have something else to think about sometimes yes. like keep her fresh so we're gonna also work on your thing even though like we're not really on a timeline here um and so that was i mean that was like pure altruism it was like hey it's really shitty what happened to you guys and I, I mean, it wasn't even, like, promised as a payment for services rendered. Like, it seemed like Han Feitzu and um, Wang Mu would have helped regardless. But, um, you know, when they eventually did release it, I, I enjoyed that they were able to slant it so that, like, it didn't destroy society on path pretty much. And I, I really liked that the outcome was... Like, hey, the gods spoken who really took advantage of their station and were really shitty people, like, yeah, they got kind of a bad time out of this. But 
people like Han Feitsu, who had always been like kind and humble and honorable, continued to be honored and like held up in their station and like really truly beloved of the people. Um, and I, it was like kind of it was just an extremely graceful transition. They're, where they're like, oh, okay, the gods have like decided to free us from this, and now we can pretty much do our own thing, and people can get educated, and you know, it was just it was a good like equalizing, pretty ideal. Yeah, it was pretty much honestly, the ideal outcome. Yeah, it, honestly, if there's one complaint about this book, it's that everything is too ideal. You know what I mean? Like that went really smoothly. Also, like the fact that the Pequeninos near Milagre didn't do anything. After they just got completely slaughtered, completely unjustifiably, by the people who they were like about to go to war to defend, is really inconceivable to me. I mean, although it didn't end perfectly, right? Like Warmaker won people over. Warmaker's forest wasn't destroyed like it was going to be. Right. And yeah, it's inconceivable, but like, the Pecaninos seem immensely honorable. Yeah, they really got their eye on the long game, too. That Oh, that's for sure. But, like, yeah. they were about to go destroy a forest of their own people because... They broke a vow. Yeah, because someone else on the planet who's never been to the forest near Malagre broke this vow that the planet made together. But the fact that like, right. they were willing to go to war to uphold a vow that they had made, you know, as a planet is pretty impressive they will go to war with each other to avenge the death of a human yeah i mean granted like a beloved human they loved they loved him yeah they really loved keem and i you know it's surprising that it really uh i guess that the other piggies let it happen i don't know i mean yeah it was it was very much twisted logic. Like Warmaker said, "Oh, you know, we're not killing you. It's just that the Holy Spirit is judging you unworthy." And like the the Pecaninos who were present at that time, like the brothers who were there, were sort of on board with that. But like even by the end, after like days of, um, after days of like catechismal argument, um, like they were kind of won over partially, but not enough to do something about it. But, I mean, how are you supposed to go against the father tree of your own forest? Like, you don't, it seems. Which is probably how Planter, or not how Planter, um, how Human and Ruder were able to keep the Pecaninos near Malagre under control. Because it doesn't seem like they were really raging about it, but I guess if you have, like, these two sort of patriarchs and they're like, no, 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 like, we know that all humans are not alike and we can't, like, we're going to be better. And... Like, only in that sort of a stratified society, I feel like, could that actually work. I mean, yeah. Also, they don't have alcohol. They don't have alcohol, that's true. <laughs> they get all drunk and terrible. Yeah, that was shitty. God, that was that was so frustrating. That whole scene was so frustrating. Yeah. Like, when they start burning a mother tree. Oh, God. Especially after they knew that Valentine... Because after we knew that Valentine was like, hey, Ugh. this is gonna get out of hand. Follow my advice. Yeah. Although I get why they didn't listen to her, because it's sort of like, okay, first of all, like, you have no experience in, like, governing, so there's that. Like, <laughs> what's, what, like, what really is your credential here? Right, but on the other hand, 
it's like they didn't do anything to look at like a cost benefit analysis. Like, right? What is the cost? A couple of your volunteer policemen that are tired in the morning. Right. Okay. What is your cost? You throw Grego in jail under emergency powers. That's well within your rights. Okay. Like you're very right. you're paying very little. You close the bars for a night. That's fine. People don't need alcohol anyway. They. I mean, they seem to really feel that it would be like bad for morale. Like people would like have less trust in the government. And I, I get where they're coming from. Like people don't want to be put under martial law, like even however temporary, however much they trust the mayor who did it. Like that's really what Valentine was proposing. So I could see them being like, uh, no, we're not going to jump there. That's too extreme. Like we'll do We'll take a couple measures and then that's it. Because it's very, it's very paternalistic to be like, well, you guys can't handle your alcohol because you're really sad. <laughs> like, I can see how that would not go over well to the people. And as Valentine said, she's like, so what? You're worried about your, like, chances of the next election? And the mayor's like, well, no, that's not it. But, I mean, like, it's probably it a little bit. I mean, he is still a politician. Right. Unfortunately, that's how politics works. It's a popularity game. Yeah. Um... And, you know, but they could have justified by going, hey, listen, we got out of hand last night. Tensions are high right now. Bars are closed tonight. Yeah. Like, there was so much opportunity for justification. And while I realize that some of the policemen were, like, in the riot, if you had been like, hey, you're on duty now, I feel like... They couldn't be getting drunk. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, most people, when they're, like, placed in that kind of position, like, definitely public scrutiny's on them and definitely a responsibility, they don't mm. do that. Like, you know, there's a, they're more likely to be able to control themselves than someone who is basically told, you know, you're off for the night, go do whatever. And That's true. goes and does whatever. It's like, hey, you're supposed to be sort of the person keeping the society safe and, like, look what you're doing. Right. Your behavior's going to be it's, way it's better. It's a powerful message. Yes. Your behavior's going to be way better when you're, you feel kind of on the spot. And, yeah. And, like, everyone's watching you. Right. And, you know, obviously that didn't go well. But it was incredibly frustrating, and I feel like, I don't know, I, I feel like they were still governing like it was a small village. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is. It's like 15,000 people. That's not very many. Yeah, but 15,000 people is a lot when you consider that compared to, like, a small village. Like, if he's compared to, like, a town that has one bar in it, it's one thing. That's true. But, like... I was honestly, like, the way they talked about Milagre, I was really surprised to hear that it was 15,000 people. I was like, oh, I would have guessed, like, 1,500, honestly. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and I can, I can, I get that. that. But I feel like they had, there was, like, very always implied that they had a grand cathedral, and I feel like they wouldn't have a grand cathedral for 1,500 people. Yeah, I don't know. Catholics love cathedrals. I mean, that's true, but they're expensive. Oh, that was another concept I really liked. Oh, the tear. The fact that... Yeah, the fact that, like, after it happened, it's, like, something you can only do in a society as religious as this, but, like, it, the, the punishment does not come from the government. The punishment comes from the bishop who's like, hey, we own that, like, we should have prevented this from happening. Like, we in authority could have taken steps and we, we failed to realize the necessity of those steps, so we're responsible. Everyone who perpetrated this heinous crime you're obviously responsible and everyone who like didn't stop you like all of the bystanders are responsible this whole freaking society failed 
in a terrible way with terrible, terrible consequences and we all need to pay penance for it. It's honestly, it was like a really beautiful community moment. It was a very powerful scene in the book. Yeah. Like, listen, we all had a part to play here and we all chose the, the worst path. And so we all need to pay. I mean, yeah, just and, if, if the powerful message and how Orson Scott Card wrote it was so good. Yeah, it really was. You know, like, we will go to the cathedral. We've torn rocks out of the walls of the cathedral. You'll go to your homes and tear them out. Like, we'll go to our factories and tear them out. And people did it. Yeah, and everyone followed through, as far mm-hmm. as we know. And, you know, the chapel was built on the torn out hearts of people's buildings. Yeah. This is so beautiful. I mean, it was definitely a very beautiful message and a very healthy reminder in this book about this community. Yeah. I mean, like, if only we had a sense of community responsibility like that here. I mean, it's hard when you don't you don't have any communities that are that tight-knit, really. Right. Because, like, even in a, ta- a, a neighborhood that's mostly one religion, there's always people that aren't that. Or, like, there are people that aren't yeah. that religious, so they're not really worried about it. It's more like a sort of a mess of overlapping communities. Yes. Like each of us is a member of different kinds of communities and they all, you know, have their different responsibilities and all of that. But none of them to this degree where it's like everyone who lives here is a part of this and answerable to this authority and will, I guess, participate in this ritual of cleansing, honestly, for lack of a better word, not to path. Yeah. And we have all... Yeah, it's just, oh, I love that scene. It's, just, it's beautiful. It's a really beautiful scene. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay. We are... You want to talk about FTL? Uh, yeah, let's talk about FTL. Cool. Um, uh, it's cool. Yeah, I'm for Nice. Uh, yeah, it's funny how the whole time, every time they're like, we want fast and let travel, and everyone's like, fuck you, Ender. <laughs> That's not possible. That's a stupid idea for stupid people. You big dumb idiot. Well, that's sort of the other thing that's too clean about this book is that, like, they achieve everything that they set out to do, no matter how impossible it seemed. Yeah, they figured out how to save Jane. Check. Fast and <laughs> I travel. Check. Hell, they even to saved To be fair, Pat. they didn't so much save Jane as they sort of realized that Jane didn't need to be saved in the immediate future. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, they saved Path, which was, like, a bonus quest. Yeah, totally. It was a side quest for sure. It was a total side quest. Path didn't even ask to be saved. They're just like, hey, this is what's going on. And by the way, we think we can cure it. Like, oh, okay, sweet. Cure it then, I guess? Well, it's funny when Ella was like, yeah, listen, honestly, this is trivial. She's like, this is straight child's play, okay? This is a fucking joke. I'm a genius. Ella's amazing. She's a I mean, there's also kind of the impression that, like, um, that, like, any competent biologist could have fixed it. It's it's the fact that no one was allowed to look. Right. Right, right. But it how, was a very fixable problem. How did that not get brought up earlier? <clears throat> like, are you kidding? It did get brought up earlier. Those people all get exiled. Yeah, but like, that was... But they were exiled and it was over. Is my point. Yeah. Religion's a powerful tool, Peter. What is? Religion. I mean, sure, but like, early on, those people get exiled like immediately. Um, yeah, but it, it it's implied that like the... <laughs> The idea of the God spoken had already been established. And you can see how, like, potentially, even if they appealed to the very God spoken that they were testing on, like, they might have not wanted that out either. Because 
they could either take Ching Zhao's perspective, which was like, no, 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 this is the disguise that the gods gave me. Like, this is the the tool that they're going to use to talk to me. Like, it's still the voice of the gods, what have you. Like, it's completely irrelevant. Get the hell out of here. Or they could take the perspective of like, listen, I've got a good deal. I'm like the top cast of society and I'm not going to like throw that away. So you need to leave. Like, it's very possible that there were Godspoken who knew about it at the time and just covered it up. We're not cool like Hanfeza. We're not cool like Hanfeza. Because he is the coolest guy. That's yeah, true. He is the coolest guy. Oh, man. How heartbreaking was it, though, when he said, I, I wish the dogs had ripped out my tongue before I taught you to think that way? Uh, <sighs> my heart. It was it was hard to see Hanfeza and doing... Um, Oh, what the hell is her name? Si Wang Mu. Si Wang Mu. Si Wang Mu. And Si Wang Mu's relationship, which was so beautiful and wholesome and full of mutual respect. Yeah. Just be utterly destroyed by this truth. Oh, oh you mean and uh, Qing Zhao's relationship? Yeah. That, I, I meant Qing Zhao. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're like beautiful father-daughter relationship being destroyed. Yeah, they had a great relationship. It was so loving. And like... Oh man, Qin Zhao just became so, so unkind, like just so hateful. And which is interesting because then she becomes like this venerated figure, like, oh, it's like the wise old woman, she's still speaking to the gods for us and, um, you know, reaching out to them. And then she becomes like the patron god of the planet. Even though she's kind of like, like she's very much a tragic figure. Right, she just had a And I guess we're not, suppo- we're not supposed to blame her. For, for thinking the way she is. But yeah, you're, you're right. It is, like, kind of a psychotic break moment. Um, and it's so sad that, like... Oh, man, when Han Feitza says, like, come get a gift from me. Like, I have a gift to give you. And he embraces her. And she, like, knows. Yeah, that is very and he, sad. And he knows that it's, like, the last time he'll ever hug her. Yeah. Ugh. It's so tragic. The whole story is so tragic. But it has, like, an overall happy ending for Path as a, as a whole. It's just really bad for that family. Yeah, and it's the price Han Feitza has to pay. And I mean, he has done a lot of bad on behalf of Congress. I mean, he stopped the the colony rebellion that might have helped Lus- kind of spare Lusitania from the start. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he's definitely done bad things for Congress in the, the grand scheme of things. I'm sure he's done some good, too. Congress can't only be evil, otherwise they still wouldn't be a power. Right. But, like... I mean, I don't think that Congress really is patently evil. I think that they just have done evil things. Like, people in Congress have done evil things well, I think, to ensure con- continuity of power. Right. I think Congress has the responsibility of, you know, 100 worlds or however many it actually some. is. Yeah. Because um, that's just a catchy name. And mm-hmm. it's got this history of power, and it has to. It has a responsibility to continue to kind of safeguard and also when you're responsible for that many people you really have to in, in a lot of people look this way is that you have to be able to throw out the like the the, the needs of the few like yeah, yeah this sucks for the citizens of path that are affected it sucks for the citizens of path that have to like then serve these gods spoken but also you know, what is one planet of, of people that's had their lives affected by our meddling compared to, you know, the billions on other worlds. Yeah, I mean, like, don't don't get us wrong. I don't think either of us is like, oh, so I get it. I'd do it, too. Yeah, but, like... By the means. Mach- Machiavelli shit. 
Machiavelli shit. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the whole thing's extremely Machiavellian. Like, the whole idea of using religion to control people is Machiavellian also. Um, but, like, you can at least see the moral calculus and how, like, a decent person could convince themselves that it was right and necessary. Absolutely. Which is, I, again, like, it's one of the things that I love about this universe is the moral complexity. Like, everyone's got dark sides. Everyone's got weakness. And I feel like you see it kind of the most with the people on Path. The only people who don't ever seem to, like, have weakness are in Dury Valentine. Well, that's true. <laughs> they just pretty much seem to be great all the time. Because they're awesome. Because <laughs> they're, they're a little too good. But, um... <laughs> Again, Ender's weakness is loving Novenia. Like, why? You could do so much better. That's true. God. Um, but maybe she's the only single woman left on Lusitania. Unlikely. We didn't think about that. Give <laughs> me Ender. He's such an eligible bachelor. He's like the most eligible bachelor. He has an earring and everything. He's so cool. <laughs> He's probably got leather jackets. No, not real leather, though. <laughs> Vegan leather. Oh. <laughs> But, yeah, no, I... So, anyway, to that point, I guess what I'm saying is Congress... I wouldn't necessarily call Congress an evil organization. They just... There are some evil things. Obviously, sending the MD device to Lusitania, pretty freaking evil. And they did that as um, a group. Like, there wasn't one person acting separately. They did decide that as a squad. Yeah, so they did squad up and were like, damning. let's send an MD to the only example of a non-human intelligent life that still exists. That's wild. Because they're rebelling. Like, that was the justification. I don't think they and sent I... the MD because they were rebelling. Why'd they send it? Because of the Descalada? Oh, yeah. 100%. But they knew about the Descalada. The Descalada wasn't news. Right, but now the Lusitania colony has shown willingness to disobey. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, again, I can sort of see that moral calculus. Yeah, again, you have... It's tr- very human-centric. Right, you have to... But, again... We look at, we talked about, like, the idea of the Varels, and the fact that if once you've decided this can, there cannot be peace, you have, you have, like, the moral obligation, moral obligation for your people to do whatever it takes to win. Yeah. And do it quickly, and don't take glee in it, but do it. That's true. And I think that the argument can be made that without more information, like, they had on the ground, you know, knowing that the Desclata could be beat, and such the Star Wars Congress had to make a decision and it's that they could, they're looking at the potential extinction of mankind or the extinction of one non-human species. Yeah, I mean, because if you're, you're thinking that the humans on Lusitania have now decided that they're going to put the needs of the piggies above the needs of humanity, then as the protectors of humanity, you can see how you're like, well, no, you're all dead then. Yeah, again, it's not me going... Not the reaction I would have, but I can see it. Right. I'm not saying I would do it too, but, you know, if we're going by the, the mental the mental uh, assumption that Star Wars Congress will act for the good of mankind as they see it, regardless of the consequences, I can understand their viewpoint. I feel like a lot of evil could be justified by being like, well, I have a responsibility to, like, this large group. You know what I mean? I mean... Not I feel like not a lot of examples of evil are for evil's sake. Like, yeah, that's I true. I mean, a lot of the the worst people or the worst things that have been done in history are examples of someone trying to do their best for some of their for their people. Now, their viewpoint of their people might be wrong, but like 
<laughs> that might be kind of evil. But they're trying to do their best as far as they can for the people the people that they see as their people. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, th- I think that that's not necessarily like, you know, it's not necessarily always the case, but I think you're right that it is often the case. I think that more often than not, evil does not happen for evil's sake. Evil happens because the person doing it genuinely believes it's the right thing to do for for their situation. Don't you think that's because you're a good person, though? You're like, I can't possibly imagine just doing evil because evil's like... So, like, because it'll serve me. Like, just for selfish ends or whatever. I mean, maybe, but... It also seems like... That would, A, backfire. And that would, you would have been caught earlier. <laughs> uh, but... B, I don't know. I think that if you take if you start drawing the line that people are evil and will do evil things for evil's sake, then you start to live in a very sad world very quickly. That's true. Whether or not it's true, it's just more pleasant to believe that for the most part, even the worst people are trying to do good in some way. In their way. And, you know, I've just got to believe that that's true. Yeah. I understand that. <sighs> oh, we, man. We barely talked about Fantasyland Travel at all. It was a cool idea. The idea was outside <laughs> the universe, though. Because I, yeah. I do often think about this, actually. A weird amount of time I think about <laughs> this. Because the the universe is expanding. It mu- yeah. There has to be something else. Does there? How can... Does there have to be an outside? Well, so... Okay, so the the principle of outside is that within our universe, certain physical laws have been established. All the uh-huh. all the phylos have agreed to talk to, to that this physical these set of physical laws work for them. Right, and that's how you know the universe, the ender universe exists. Uh huh. So the idea of them expanding, assuming the universe is also expanding, um. The idea of them expanding in a way that forces their reality wider kind of makes sense. Like, they have a bubble of reality, and they're pushing it out. Okay. But it has to be expanding into something. I don't know. I don't know that I feel that way. Because things are either infinite or finite, right? And so I guess what you're saying, correct me if I'm misunderstanding you, is that an expanding universe has to have boundaries to expand. And so if there's boundaries, there's an outside. I mean, the, the universe has an edge. It ha- like, as far as we can tell, it has to. Unless the universe is a weird shape. This is always twists my mind right up. Well, there, there, you should, there are some... Actually, I'm going to send you some YouTube videos at some point. Um, there's some <laughs> cool ones where they talk about, like, what the shape of the universe could be that would allow it. Like, can you go to the edge of the universe? And if not, what is the spherical equivalent of, or the three-dimensional equivalent of, um, essentially a, a globe, right? Like, flat Earth versus globe. Can you get to the edge of the universe, or will you just end up back where you started? <laughs> it's interesting. And the, it's an interesting question. Yeah, there was some. The, I mean, the shape to do that would be interesting, um, but 
Well, one of the things they threw out, they were like, hey, maybe it's not even that the universe is expanding. Maybe the speed of light is just slowing down. You never know. That's true. That was wild. <laughs> that was like, whoa. I was like, no, I've got to believe it's expanding. <laughs> no, 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 no. The, no. the alternative is unacceptable to my mind. <laughs> I, mean, I, I reject this. I mean, I know it's expanding into, but at least I can get on board with the fact that the universe is expanding. <laughs> oh my god, true. But yeah, I, it was a uh, very interesting explanation. I guess I was su- <clears throat> sorry. Let me try that again. It's very interesting explanation. I guess I was surprised that um that there was like time that passed outside. Well, I think the idea was that Jane was holding together their pattern, and with their pattern was the nature of their universe. I guess that's true. So, like, because you're here, here follows natural laws yeah, because it's a part of the pattern right. that Jane. And is. otherwise, they would be dead. So it's like I find it yeah. as like a pocket universe, like a pocket of our yeah, universe basically, yeah, basically consisting of that like a little spaceship. Yeah. Now here's here's a question. Uh huh. I think most of their phylos disappeared. Now bear with what? me. Okay. <laughs> I think my theory is that Jane took. Their Ayuas with her. Uh-huh. And Philotes on the outside formed into the pattern dictated by the Ayua. Oh. Yeah, actually, that makes and sense. And came from the outside. And then when they bounced back, either they kept the old Philotes or new Philotes from the universe joined in. Um, although I guess right. it, you know, it would actually make sense that following that train of logic, they would have had the Ayuas come back. But it's entirely possible that it's different phylums that they formed with when they came back. Yeah, no, that makes sense to so me. So they could be an entirely new set of phylums. Minus the yeah. Iowa. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense, honestly. It's, I mean, the whole idea of, like, teleportation is that your body will be obliterated in one place and reassembled in another. Right, it's the Star Trek question. Right. I feel like this came up recently. On the podcast or elsewhere? Elsewhere. I don't remember. I don't feel like it came up on the podcast. Um, and I don't think it was, like, directly... Ta- but, like, I remember... I, something came up in something I was, like, reviewing or reading or whatever. Where it was talking about, like, the decimation of your body, but the recreation of it elsewhere. Like, where where does the self end and the, and the new self continue? Yeah. And then what does that say about the idea of a spirit? Because... We have no evidence that anything like an Iowa exists necessarily. Oh, you know what? I think it was. I think it was the Singularity Trap. I reread it recently. Oh, yeah, it, sure. It was the idea whether continuity of consciousness indicates the same life. Mm, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think we talked about that in the, like the ship of Theseus and everything when we did that episode. Yeah, we did. And uh, I think it applies again here. Sure. If, I mean, anytime you're talking about teleportation, which is really what we're talking about. Right. If their bodies were destroyed and recreated, um, and obviously the, they seem the same, and as far as right. we know, they are, it's, it must be the same Iowa. So they are the same. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's really weird. Because, I mean, clearly things were formed out of the phylos that were outside. Right. We have Peter, we have Valentine, and then we have the um, Ricolata and, like, the virus and bacteria of that safe path. Right, we have... Oh, by the way, yes. like, half this book, I was like, man, if only Orson Scott Card knew about CRISPR when he read this. 
Could just crispered all that down. All right, I don't like, think crispered would have worked on the record on the uh, Descalada. No, I wouldn't. It's DNA, isn't it? Yeah, sure, but they could. The issue wasn't that they couldn't mess with the DNA. The issue is that they couldn't mess with the DNA fast enough. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Like, like, <laughs> but, but I mean, basically, it's like not super clear to me how they how they how they eventually like purged the society of it. They did they use the bacteria? They used the bacteria to kill it. And then they replaced it with Recolata. That's like backwards, though. Viruses kill bacteria, not the other way around. Um, yeah, you're right. It is. Maybe we can't. Maybe the Descalada is so massive. It's a super that virus. The bacteria eats it. I guess. I mean, it seems to be implied I mean, that the, the, the Descalada. I mean, the bacteria can digest. Like bacteria can digest viruses in some cases, but not, generally not. Okay, but they they are not the predator in that relationship. The Descalada. Carries within God, it's it. It's an hour and a half. It's fine. What? The Descalada, it's okay. <laughs> we actually got our up, our up download or our upload limit increased. <laughs> Giddy up, everybody. Um, it's an Orson Scott card bunk. You know what that means. <laughs> so the, um, oh shoot, give me a second. So the, sorry. The Descalada <laughs> contains within itself the genetic code for all life on Lusitania. Okay, but there's like eight different species on Lusitania. It doesn't matter. Do we, as far as we can tell, they're pretty complex, and the I mean, we don't know how many like, like we don't know how long the genome for the Pecaninos is. But I mean, we have no idea how many chromosomes they have and whatnot. I mean, when we're dealing with chromosomes, like that's not a virus. You're right. That's that's like a, I don't even know what. Parasite, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think virus is necessarily a great name for the Descalada. Especially because it seem, it can actively communicate between Descaladas. That's not yeah, a viral Yeah, honestly, feature. it acted a lot, a lot more like bacteria, in my opinion. Yeah. Because bacteria do that straight up. Like, that's part of how antibiotic resistance spreads. They, like, create little bridges and plas- pass plasmids through each other. Yeah, so it definitely seems like the Descalada are not a, is not a virus. Yeah, I, sometimes sometimes you have to figure out, like, does the author really understand what a virus is? <laughs> or are they just using it because it's a scary word yeah. for pathogens? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Viruses can't, on their own, communicate information between each other. No. Yeah, no, they don't do that. I mean, I, you know, okay, I will say this. It's an alien-engineered virus, probably, as far as we know so far. No, it is an alien-engineered pathogen. I reject the concept of it as a virus. I, I Yes, if we are using a human, a current human understanding of viruses... Because it seems to be assumed that the Descalada is life. Like, is alive. It's just a matter of what kind of life is I don't know. It. Maybe future humans have nailed down that viruses are life. Maybe we've decided that viruses are, in fact, life by then. But uh, yeah, we have 3, right years now, to that is the not argument. the general opinion. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. And, you know, I agree. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, it's just, uh, the Descalada biology is a little hinky, but that's understandable. Yeah, it's like a, some random bullshit that Arson Scott Card made up. Yeah, I mean, that's always, it's always how it goes, Although right? it does seem pretty unresearched. Which makes you wonder if he would have even used CRISPR. I'm just saying, I feel like he could have, like, talked to a high school biology teacher and they would be like, nah, you can't, viruses can't do that. <laughs> don't call that a virus, call it something else. <laughs> yeah, super bacteria, I don't give a shit. Yeah, like, like uh... Protomolecule from the expanse. Yeah. Now that's good sci fi yeah, branding. That's not real shit. Fantastic. Like, Protomolecule, not unlike the Descalada in its way. So. That's true. There you go. 
So yes, it's not a, not a bad uh, not a bad branding. The Descalada obviously has some biological problems with its branding. Uh, virus seems incredibly <laughs> yeah. wrong. Uh, at this point, I'm people just love calling things viruses. I'm going with viruses. super bacteria. Hmm. Well, okay. <laughs> super bad, big bacteria boy. I'm just saying to have the 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 genetic code for all of Lusitania life is already more complicated than I think bacteria are. Oh, way more complicated than bacteria are. Yeah. So like. It could, my, I originally started this train of thought on my own. You could just be a monocellular parasite. I I didn't realize that. I guess I did. Are you a cellular parasite? I don't, really, I don't think I realized that existed. Does that exist, or are you making that up? Yeah, no, it exists. Oh, fuck. That's what, um... Oh, God, what are they called? I don't know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No, like, when people say they get, like, a parasite when they're swimming and stuff, like, Giardia. Giardia's a parasite? unicellular, yeah. Um... I just kind of thought of that as, like, a sickness, like an illness, like an infection. What's the difference between bacteria uh, I and mean, unicellular... Wait, hold on. Aren't kids all bacteria be a unicellular parasite? Yes, yes, also bacteria, but, like, you can be a eukaryotic unicellular parasite. Oh, okay, so more complicated. Uh, yeah, and more DNA. Well, yeah, more DNA, more complicated, has a nucleus. Right, that's, that's, the, that's the cutoff? I forget. Yeah, like paramecia. I haven't taken biology since high school. Protozoas. That's what I was trying Protozoas. to think of. Anyway. Yeah. Um, that type of thing. Yes. Anyway, definitely. It's been a fun digression. Definitely other better indicator or signs of disclosure. I started on this train of thought originally um, on my own because I was thinking about like, hold up. It has the genetic code <laughs> for all Lusitania life. I was like, viruses are fucking tiny. <laughs> They're really small. Yeah. They're really Isn't, small. Uh, oh, fuck. What's the name of the virus that causes HIV? Uh, it's, it's HIV. Oh, it's HIV, that's right. It, AIDS is... It causes AIDS. Age, the HIV <laughs> virus causes AIDS. Okay. Human immunodeficiency virus. But how, how small is it? It's, like, crazy small. It's stupid small. It has ten genes. Ten genes, that's it. Yeah, that's what you're thinking of. Yeah, so it's very small. And obviously there are... You know how many genes? We have, like, hundreds of thousands yeah, of genes. They're... It's amazing what it does to you with ten genes. It really fucks your shit up with ten genes. It is, it is a slick little machine, HIV. That shit's efficient as hell. It's, like, the most efficient. Um, anyway, not to, you know, like, be like, oh, hell yeah, HIV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Big fans over here, apparently. <laughs> anyway, yes. Orders of magnitude. We just admire craftsmanship. Descalada. Orders of magnitude to more co- too complex too for viruses. Yes. Well, yes, definitely. Um, okay. Maybe that's, do you think that's why it only lets you have a couple species? It ran half space. Like, I'm, I'm out of memory. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Descalada is only 8-bit, so. <laughs> there are no upgrades available. <laughs> Descalada ran out of RAM. You can lower the resolution of your whole <laughs> <laughs> To store more. Oh, yeah. Oh, if, it, if it drops Let's the resolution, see. it can go maybe, out yeah, three, four more species. <laughs> I, it was prepared. Well, okay. <laughs> it makes me think oh, of that Mitch Hedberg joke, like maybe Bigfoot is blurry. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and to me, that's kind of scarier. <laughs> it's a large, out of focus monster running around in the forest. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh god. Anyway, uh, <laughs> let me bring out of storage. <laughs> 
do we have more to say about the Discolada? No. I feel like there will be even more to say about the Discolada in the next book, right? Yeah. Um, I, w- I, w- I did want to, real quick, though, call, like, call attention to the Discolada's role in terraforming. That's fucking okay, yes. genius. It's very cool. That's very good. And, like, that out. was... Okay, yes, because I was just thinking I wanted to talk about that conversation with, um... Uh, See what I mean? With Planter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we didn't even talk about fucking like, devastated. Yeah, Planter's like, oh my god, like, everything we do is just, we're just puppets. We're puppets on a string. And, like, that revelation is so devastating to him. And I, I can understand why. Um, Certainly. And then poor little Planter gave his life to prove that, like, that wasn't the case. Like, he didn't even get to have a third life. It was so sad. Poor little Planter. And I mean, like, I like that the Pecaninos, they made a point of talking about how the Pecaninos broke their tradition of not yeah. you know, remembering the names of brother trees. Yeah. But they're like, Planter was, you know, worthy of too much honor for that to be Yeah, he was honored as a father tree. He just wasn't a father tree, unfortunately. Yeah. And I, I thought that scene was really important, talking about, like, the idea of intelligence and where does it come from and is free will even a thing. It was, I thought it was funny that Valentine, like, contradicted herself during it. She's like, well, you know, like, humans are just completely driven by, like, evolutionary desires, too. And then she's like, oh, but, like, look at all these wonderful things. That's not just evolutionary desires. And Planner's like, first of all, you're still talking about humans, not Picaninos. Second of all, uh, you're contradicting yourself, so shut up. But it is, it's, like, a hard thing to talk about. Because, yeah, like, you can definitely make the argument that, um, you know, a lot of human society and stuff has been developed because of evolutionary drives. But there's also a lot of, like, things that are independent of that that we do. I mean, I think that the the development of a species is about when they can start (laughs) kind of turning their back on evolutionary drives. Hey, like, you know what isn't supporting evolutionary drives? Welfare. Mm-hmm. Any government. yeah, government, any sort of social um, organization, you know, so like right. Medicare, large scale societies. Yeah, it doesn't. It does not support the idea of evolution as a societal right. function. Right. If you are not directly, if you and your offspring are not directly benefited by it, then you do not have an evolutionary advantage for taking part in it. Yeah, and a lot of people would rather like are in the position of like, oh man, this is not helpful. Like, people that have, you know, reasonably successful jobs in a private industry that pay for their own health care. And they're, like, looking at their taxes every, like, this time of year especially, they're looking at how much money the government taxed them for all these services that they don't benefit from. Yeah. And, like, oh man, tax is theft. But there's also lots of people who do that and are still, like, okay with it because they know that, like, their sort of natural sense of duty to their fellow man is satisfied. But it's not a natural sense of duty to their fellow man. That's not an evolutionary trait. Like, that, that, is, that uh, is a learned behavior, not, a, not an ingrained biological behavior. Well, where did we learn it from if there's no, like, human advantage to it? Because I think there, like, originally there was a, there is some advantage like Having a like sense of early. responsibility for your neighbor... And therefore, your neighbor having a sense of responsibility for you—that's a mutually beneficial arrangement. I mean, but we had to expand that to an entire society, right? Which is why some people, I think, have more trouble with it now. 
Whereas, like, if somebody came up to them and begged them for help, very few people would, like, spit in their faces. But, like, from a general societal, you know, like, large-scale picture, you could still be pissed about, you know, the money being taken out of your check for welfare programs. Yeah, that's true. Like, I think that it's honestly, at this point, kind of a matter of distance. Okay. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm with Val. (laughs) Maybe it is all evolutionary. (laughs) Maybe I'm with Val in the beginning of the conversation, not Val at the end of the conversation. Early Val. <laughs> Early Val. But no, I mean, I don't think that every that every human behavior is completely prescribed that way. I mean, it's um, it's the argument of nature versus nurture, right? Like, right. And I think the general consensus is it's not all nature, it's not all nurture. Yeah, it is both. It is both. It's not so much nature versus, it's nature and. Yes. And, you know, I think we all need to get on board with that and start talking about it. <laughs> Can we disagree? They're both there. And uh, that's it. End of story. Yeah, that's all, that's all there is to it. Um, yep. Okay. Okay. This has gone on for very long. It has. We should probably wrap up. Yeah. Um, we. Can... I just realized I never formally decided what our next book is going to be, but it's okay because I just decided. All right, fantastic. <laughs> I, I, uh... I was just like, oh, crap. Okay, no, we'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. It's fine. Um, I'm... We can talk a lot more about the Descalada and its role it plays on the planet uh, in our next book. Yes. When we be children of the mind. That story, that story is not over. Yeah. So, we'll we, see you next we year. We skipped it intentionally. <laughs> yes. Okay. Cece, let's wrap up before you sniffle your way to a belly ache, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that was so cute. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your concern. Um, okay. So okay, so here's what I have just spontaneously decided that we're gonna do What's next, our next month. I don't think either of us has ever read it, so hopefully it's good. Okay. It's certainly very important. Uh, a canticle for Leibowitz. Never heard of it. Never heard of it, really. So this is a trend. It's so uncultured. I know. Apparently. Oh yeah, <laughs> this is like the last time I introduced a quote-unquote classic sci-fi book. Um. It is it is a well enough known title that I didn't know it was sci fi until fairly recently. Oh really? Yeah. So. All right. Um, yeah. So it's uh, written by Walter and Miller Jr. and it's sort of a post apocalyptic, uh, post post nuclear apocalyptic U.S. story. Um, I guess. Spanning thousands of years, a civilization rebuilds itself, according to Wikipedia, um, set in a Catholic monastery. Sorry, it is more Catholics in the future. Hell yeah. But I guess it, we're following a trend right now. This is the Catholic season, apparently. Well, I mean, so. it's got to be Lent. <laughs> That's true. We got to get ready. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I have never read it. Um, but my understanding is that it's a pretty significant book in the sci-fi lexicon. So we're going to continue to expand our horizons, Peter. All right, I'll find another s- space novel or a space opera for next for the month after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta, we gotta like turn it back down. Maybe we'll watch a movie that. Well, month. no, we. I think we alternate. I think you pick out classical, beautiful, well-known <laughs> sci-fi, and I pick out space operas. You say I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah. we'll do like another. Halo Here's this 300-page bullshit. Yeah, we'll do Halo. <laughs> Get into that Mass Effect expanded universe. Oh hell yeah! Let's go. No, it's honestly probably you already see, see, you already said we'll do another Halo book. You didn't have to specify Mass Effect. 
All right. All right. Let's wrap it. So, Peter, we have some new communication information. Yes. Okay. So, we have, for personal reasons, uh, started, <laughs> got, uh, expanded our online presence in a way that you'll never see, except uh, we do have a new email address. So, I'm going to route all the information from our old email address to this one. So, if you have that, you know, I don't know, somewhere or if it's whatever, uh, it'll still work. But we have a new email address that you can reach us at that's a little more official looking. You know, for our very serious <laughs> podcast. Yes, our very serious podcast network, Peter. Please. Oh, yes, of course. We are a network. We do have two podcasts, technically. Okay. Uh, so our. <laughs> Feels like we did two podcasts an hour and 48 minutes in. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so our new email address is sci fi sidebar at signifyingnothingnetwork.com. Uh, I actually think that might have been when our one was, like, way back when. Back when we used to host ourselves? Yeah, back when we had our own website, or hosted our own website. So, um, that is a thing that exists, and we have. So, again, that's sci-fi sidebar at signifyingnothingnetwork.com. Yep. Um, and as before, you can still find us at facebook.com slash sci-fi sidebar or facebook.com slash signifyingnothingnetwork. Uh, where you can follow us, get any updates on episode releases, etc., etc. Most notably, now and again, if we're late. We, we share a meme. We have yeah, most most usually. Oh, we're late and we're sorry. <laughs> yes, it's either an episode or we're late and this is why. Yes, <laughs> um, or uh, sig nothing net on Twitter. Okay, so we got we got our next book. It, right, we got our content information. Yep. Uh, so please find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. The next book will be released on March twenty or March second, rather. <laughs> March twentieth. Give ourselves a lot of time. <laughs> How big is that book, Susie? <laughs> Hit me with those page numbers. I, I think it's like three hundred pages. I don't think oh, it's, it's crushable. Bad. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's crushable. It is called a canicle for Leibowitz. I don't know if it's crushable, <laughs> but it is not very long. <laughs> All right. That is everything. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening, especially if you stuck with us through this very long episode. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Um, yeah, we hope that you continue sharing our episodes with your friends and loved ones and sci-fi fan fellows. If you want to, um, <laughs> if, yeah, if you want to like request a book or, you know, you have something that you think we should uh, take another look at or something we missed in one of our episodes, we'd love to hear from you about, like, about that. And, you know, if you've got a request. Or if we were super wrong about Path. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Actually, that. especially that, please. And um <laughs> yeah, if you if you got something you want us to do, uh obviously I'm not too well versed on sci-fi because he keeps surprising me with books I've never heard of. Uh so I mean, we have different different uh spheres. <laughs> I guess that's fair. Anyway, so different but overlapping spheres. Uh, help us fill out our experiences. Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely lots that neither of us have heard of still, so yeah, uh get at us. Alrighty. Thank you guys so much again. This has been Sci-Fi Sidebar from the Signifying Nothing Network. A tale told by idiots. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. See you next time.